0: Nā nō my welcome to Animal Matters SAFE's fortnightly podcast with your hosts Will Appleby and Courtney White.
1: So it is episode 69 here at Animal Matters and today we are chatting to the incredible Dr. Annie Potts who is a professor in human animal studies and the co-director of the New Zealand Centre for Human Animal Studies at Canterbury University. Annie it is lovely to have you here, welcome. Kia ora and thank you so much for inviting me. Look there is so much to speak to you about Um, so I guess to sort of start off really keen to hear about what's been going on recently in the hugely wide-ranging world of human animal studies. Can you first of all tell us what that is? Um, Well human animal
2: studies is really a kind of interdisciplinary area that studies human animal relationships so from many different perspectives so there are people who work in, you know, ranging from sociology through to gender studies, cultural studies, and then there'd be people um, who are also looking at this in, in biological sciences, uh, zoology and so on. Um, so that's human-animal studies, which is really, it's hard to kind of define it because so many people are working in the area, but it's basically about looking at human-animal relationships that's the broader field but my my field is really critical animal studies which is a much more politicized version of human animal studies it's really about focusing in on the power relations between humans and animals so it's actually informed by ideas about power and control whereas human animal studies as a broader field may not have any interest in those sorts of issues you know so really that At um, the New Zealand Centre for Human Animal Studies, we're interested in primarily looking at uh, human power over other species and the environment. With a view, of course, to challenging that, disrupting it and changing it.
1: It's so interesting how it sort of seems to touch every other aspect of academia as well. And it should because... It's such a massive topic that does touch on all of these different areas in and out of academia. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're kind of looking at in terms of those power dynamics? What, what do you mean when you talk about those?
2: Yeah, okay. So really, when I'm looking at that, I'm looking at Western constructions um, of anthropocentrism and speciesism. And that's like going back to, way back to Aristotle through to Descartes, who really brought in the idea of the human-animal divide in Western culture in a really, well, it's an entrenched form now. But, you know, of course, Descartes was involved in early animal experiments that meant it it was convenient for him as a philosopher and and analyst and experimenter to, to sort of believe that animals couldn't suffer or feel pain. And that there was this division between human sort of sentience and um, ability to experience pain and suffering and, and you know, every other species having no ability to understand pain or suffer. But that was also what we what we learn in our courses is that that's also, it was also through Judeo-Christian ideology that, you know, there was a, in the creation narrative in the Bible this idea that, Adam gets to name the animals and Adam also gets to dominate the animals and this idea of dominion comes about, which also fed into Western constructs of human-animal relationships. And so what I do in my courses, and I I tend to do this through having the students look at popular culture, so films and novels, um, TV series and so on. We look at how animals are represented and treated in those Um, texts, if you like, and we take this back to those ideas that come from Judeo-Christianity in the Bible, come from science, and science is kind of setting up of this human-animal divide. We do that in my classes, but we also have um, one of our recent PhD uh, um, graduates, Kirsty Dunn, who's tangata whenua, and she introduces students uh, through the Stage 1 course to um, animal whanaunga in Tao Māori, so I, I, human-animal relationships within the world of Māori, which is quite, quite different, of course, from Western constructs because in Māori, uh, understandings of human-animal relationships, animals are ancestors, they're also kin, they have close relationships to humans and to Atua, um, into you know, the environment. So it's a very different way of understanding how humans are with other species in the world. So it's really, really cool to have Kirsty teaching that because on the one hand, then they get this really fundamental understanding of human-animal relations in Aotearoa that's different from the Western constructs that are more dominant and are certainly leading our legal, institu- you know, our legal um, institutions and, and other institutions here um, and then in our other courses, we're really critiquing Western cultural understandings of the human-animal divide. So we also have um, Nick Taylor. She teaches a course in human services and sociology, which is on um, it's called "Humans, Animals, and Society." And Nick's area of expertise is um, the link between social violence and animal abuse. So she um, she has other areas of expertise as well. But so. Social workers, human services um, students and um, other sociology students get to learn about these connections in her course. And then students can come through to uh, my 400-level honours course, which is called Intersectionalities, Humans, Animals and Otherness. And we look at how various forms of human oppression, discrimination and marginalisation are really connected uh, very intimately to Uh, forms of animal abuse and animal marginalisation and oppression. Then, of course, we've just recently, within a few years, set up the PhD in Human Animal Studies there. People can take it at Canterbury now, and we currently have seven students enrolled in that. Um, Half of them are international and half are domestic, and two of them, we've just had two of our the first, so it's been running for three years, this PhD, Program or degree, and we've just had the first two hand in submit their theses, one um, both which are going to be turned into books. So we're really thrilled with that. And um, they were uh, Eve de Vincent who looked at animal captivity and biographies, basically looking at biographies of animals who are captive in zoos in, in the USA, um, showing um, basically what shit these things are and how they make up so many. Um, just absolute untruths to bring audiences in and to keep these animals. So she's getting that published and the other one is Erin Jones who's um, who's just written about dog training. She looked at the idea of consent in human dog relationships and I understand that's going to be brought out in the book as well. So we're really proud of those two who are the first to, to graduate and um, the next one along will be Emily Major who's looking at uh, possums in Aotearoa, New Zealand.
0: You mentioned before the link between human oppression and animal oppression. I'm fascinated to know more about that. Could you describe how that that occurs in in society?
2: Well, it occurs on many different different ways and different levels. Um, An example would be disability and animal rights, so there's a, a scholar in New York called Sonara Taylor who's also an artist and she, she was born with a condition called arthrogryposis, which is basically, you know, where your, uh, your mobility is very uh, restricted and part of her art is to show the ways that her disability, you now I'm using spare quotes there, has meant that people throughout her life had referred to her in dehumanising terms uh, called her more animal-like she has pictures of herself you know where she had she had what the medical profession still call lobster hands you know which is already the use of an animal term in a derogatory way for her experience of living in this body and anyway, as an artist what she has been really interested in is how you know bre- breeding of animals for intensive farming practices actually works to breed disability and disease into for example boiler chicks because you know we all know that they within five to six weeks can't stand up on anymore because their skeletons can't hold up the massive muscles that have been that have grown on them and they've been bred and fed in a way that means that that happens quicker um and and you know in such a disabling way so What Sonara Taylor does is is artwork, and I'd encourage everyone to look her up because she has artwork where she puts herself in in the art in the position of, say, a broiler chicken. Um, And she's empathising with their condition because she has felt the same kind of sense of pain and discomfort through her own disability. So it's a kind of empathetic connection that she's making, but it's so, I just find it so powerful to show students because. People don't make the connection that the, the meat they're eating comes from birds bred to have disease and disability within, you know, a few weeks of life. When they're actually still babies, they've still got baby feathers on, they're still cheating for their mothers. and They're already so disabled they can't stand. But we've done that to them. Um, and she points that out. And as someone who has a disability herself, I think that's extremely effective. So she's felt that kind of oppression on the other side where people are talking to her about or are animalising her because of her disability. But she's cho- she's chosen her own work to make that connection to how uh, animals are, are disabled uh, and people make no, have really no awareness of this. And some people, when they do have an awareness, aren't particularly interested, you know, because of speciesism and anthropocentrism. So we have a whole like we have a whole section on disability and animal rights. We have a section on racism and animal rights. We have a section on gender sexuality where we look at because another example for you well would be you know meat advertising and how it's often uses women's bodies in ways to stand in for like meat and um, so women are being animalized and animals also get sexualized because we've all seen the pictures and the advertisements of these happy you know busty chickens who seem to be enjoying the fact that they're giving people lots of eggs or they're going to be, you know, on a dinner table shortly and as if they're really happy to do that. And they're often sexualised or overly feminised, so it works both ways, um, those representations. but So we look at that. Uh, but there are so many ways once you start looking at the connections between human forms of marginalisation and then animal oppression. You know, I think once you start looking, you find it everywhere. So that's why I believe personally that animal rights needs to be an intersectional movement where there's also inclusion of these forms of human oppression that, that feed into or shape by and in turn shape these kinds of issues we have with animal oppression. I mean, I've just shown my class... Um, I don't know if you know about the Thai, of course you will because you're safe people, but the Thailand, you know, um, seafood industry has human slaves working on on all the boats and they simply can't get off the boats, they're stuck on there, they're from Cambodia and um, uh, I can't remember the other country, Alberta, uh, Myanmar, and anyone who eats Thai seafood now is basically not only contributing to the decimation of, the um, areas where they fish and the fish themselves, um, their deaths, but also they're contributing to human slavery by just endorsing them and just that industry. So, you know, the more people know about intersectional issues, I think it also helps humans to kind of, if they're not already animal rights people, to see the connections better because often if you apply it to human issues, it sometimes makes people think eh, a little bit more deeply because we are basically anthropocentric, I think, and we need to see that connection to ourselves. Um, not always. I mean, I don't think us three have done that. We've probably always loved animals and wanted to help them, but some people need a little bit of a push.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's really interesting. I my, I love the concept of intersectionality. I think it's fascinating. And um, one of the really interesting conversations that happens specifically in feminist circles is around veganism now, because it is starting to be seen as one of those things that needs to be part of your intersectional feminism, in the same way that um, you know being anti-racist and being inclusive of of all spectrums of gender and sexuality is just as important. And oftentimes that's really confronting for people because the the connection is hard to see. But especially when you start to look at the way that animals are commodified, oftentimes what you are seeing is the commodification of female bodies. And I think that's an easy way in in that and in, into that sort of area by, you know, it is female chickens who are bred for their eggs. It is female cows who provide the milk. So there is that real connection there. And I think, you know, starting to see that, that was my end, And that's where I started to understand what intersectionality meant for animal rights and veganism as well as feminism. Yeah. And
2: I think that's very powerful. I mean, I'm not a mother, but I just had a, a text from a a very old, I mean, dear friend of mine for the last, like, 30 years, who is a mother, and she she texted me to say that something I had posted on my Facebook, which was of basically it looked like a terrified bobby calf about to be killed at the Whanganui um, slaughterhouse, um, she had seen this and the blurb that went with it, which was actually by Sandra Kyle, who you might know, you know, she's um, – she often bears witness to the animals about to go to slaughter at the at that pine meat plant, and she'd taken this photo and my friend wrote and said, "Well, I've just seen your picture on uh, Facebook and that's it there's no more meat there's no more dairy or cheese for me. I can't eat it anymore as a mother and that's that connection for her there is as a mother she was thinking of this calf and the cow you know and the separation they are forced to have and then they're, they're just so expendable these and these are the male calves too more often than not just go to slaughter straight away it's just it just seems so criminal and brutal when you when you know about it but i don't think many people in new zealand do actually realize that. i mean she had not you know it despite me going on about it for years but it's been registered till she actually saw this image um So I I thank people like Sandra Kyle for actually doing that kind of thing. That's not something I can personally do myself. It's too much for me to witness those things happening and not be able to actually intervene. Um, So when when those images come around to me, they're just so powerful.
1: That's actually a really interesting point and one that I've thought about quite a lot is for you – getting those images and like you just said it is really hard and witnessing takes a toll Um, for you showing those pictures what do you think the right balance is or is there one or is it just sort of a feeling in terms of what is important to show with those pictures showing a thousand words versus what can become overbearing or what could potentially push people the other way what have you experienced in 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 your work
2: well I mean I I suppose I teach at 200, 300, and 400 level in basically animal rights advocacy, um, using critical animal studies approaches. And they are always about visual culture because I don't teach literature or novels or poetry like other people in my department do. I teach film, and visual culture. But I start off, like I said before, I start off easily, like, um, for people to first encounter this, these kinds of ideas. By looking at popular culture, like we start off in my first class by looking at films like King Kong, and Free Willy, and Jaws, and um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and each one of those films allows us to look at some topic. Like The Island of Dr. Moreau, it's about vivisection, so but it's easier to look at because it's a step removed. You know, it's um, it's fictional, but it's not fictional. And then in the next 300 level course. I move more into looking at visual culture and animal rights activism. So they already know that if they want to take the next course that it's going to get more advanced and we're going to be looking at some more nitty gritty material. So we do look at we look at animal rights artists and uh, documentary making, which is weird beyond like nature documentary making, which is so contrived and artificial. And we look at advertising meat and dairy and we look at, um, so it's pe- each step it moves up a little bit more so that they can, hopefully they take the course knowing they're going to get into something a little bit more, you know, intense. And then when they come to the honours course, that's where it's kind of expected that they can view things like, like we looked at comparisons between factory farming and the Holocaust in the last class that we, that I ran last term. And we looked at the debates about this because, of course, that's a very contentious uh, subject. And so we, so what I wanted to do was introduce them to the, to the positions of Jewish animal rights activists themselves and also, um, Jewish activists who absolutely disapproved of that comparison. And then they can make their own kind of, they can think about this in their own ways but they've've they've given those different perspectives and although it was harrowing for them to watch some of the material which included survivors talking about what happened and also those survivors comparing that to animal issues, I think at that stage they're ready for that because they've come through the other two courses and you know it's just something that if you're going to really engage with these issues on a really deep level, then these are some of the subjects that are difficult controversial but really important to look at i think
1: yeah and it is it's hard to know um even sort of from you know my perspective in terms of being an activist you know how much you sort of show people versus pull back on or whether you go sort of in a more hope-based sort of slant or you show the realities it's really hard to know and it's quite a balancing act so it's really interesting it is a
2: balancing act. Mm. it is a Oh, the last things that I've just, one of my last research projects, which is getting published in a book called Felinist Animal Studies, um, I didn't show images because I thought the descriptions were just as harrowing and there was no need for images. That was about, I was writing about, um, well, gynocentric sex research and how this uses female animals' bodies. So, what that nobody's really looked at this before that because when people look at vivisection, they tend to look at it seems to me they're more interested in like medical treatments that are more commonly known. But not, I haven't seen anybody really write about sex research that it involves female and male animal bodies. But for this particular article, was just looking at female animal bodies and in particular how they make these animal models uh, that replicate. The kinds of sexual difficulties or painful sexual, painful genital problems that women might encounter. So they replicate these in mice and rabbits and rats and dogs. You know, and I mean, one of these conditions that they've done this model for, it's called a genital pain model, and it's been produced using mice who are. If if you're a woman, you've probably at some stage had a yeast infection, or at least known what that is. You know, thrush. Well, what they do is they give these mice uh, repeated applications of yeast on their genitals until they develop a sensitivity to touch whether or not the yeast is there or not. And then that's the pain model developed, so they're, now they're they've got discomfort and pain. And then the researchers, um, using their fingers, uh, manipulate these mice until they to see if they can still Uh, have any kind of sexual response. Now, in my mind, that is bestiality. But in the minds of these scientists, it's just sex research. But it's interspecies sexual violence. There's no way around that that you can think that's anything but sexual violence against these mice. But it's not called that within sex research. It's just simply, you know, an experiment. And um, so I'm hoping that through this research, I can get people to think about how... Things that scientists do uh, can be like what we would commonly call interspecies violence or species sexual violence or bestiality, and have it looked at in a different way because it's basically what it is. And I was also looking at the premarin models, you know, for HRT, where they use the pregnant mare's urine for and how that's just so much just like the dairy industry repeated but with horses. You know, the foals are taken off the mares and mares are kept confined. They have the urine taken away but they're kept pregnant so that the urine has these hormones in it and and foals are just taken off to be killed or else they repeat the cycle. It's, you know, um, women need to know what it is they're taking. Do they really want to take this kind of, you know, product that's harming so many horses? So they need to ask for plant-based hormone replacement therapy, not just take what the doctor gives them, because it could be this equine, you know, estrogen, um, hormone replacement therapy, which is cruel to the max.
1: And what a thing to have to ask. I mean, I wouldn't even have thought that that would be on the horizon, that you would even need to be concerned about that. And to be honest, you know, we talk about vivisection and things often, but I've never, I've never heard of the first instance you're talking about with the mice Never heard about that. And actually, it's really interesting that, I mean, we started this conversation off talking about Aristotle and this idea that, you know, animals aren't sentient and it, it suits science to kind of say that they don't have that feeling or they don't feel pain or they don't feel things in the same way as we do. And exactly like you're saying, it's sexual violence, but we don't define it like that because that, that theory, that philosophical issue that was thousands of years old is still here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's rampant in sex research. I mean, even like what I was what I was saying in my, it is an intersectional issue because feminist sex researchers aren't concerned about the use of animals. They're, they're feminist, so they're really concerned about women's sexual difficulties and pain, on, pain for women during sex or, you know, menopausal issues and stuff. But they're all, to my knowledge, I haven't found any that are, opposed to animal experimentation, and they used female animal bodies to research these uh, sexual difficulties. So, you know, even some of the staunchest groups that are opposed to drugs, so opposed to big pharma getting involved in the making of these drugs, it's still all about women, not about the animals that have been part of this research. In fact, they're invisibilized so much. And I hate to say it, but a lot of the feminist sex researchers have experimented on animals themselves. So there's an intersectional issue that I would like to get my teeth into. <laughs> Try, you know, and sort of, you know, why is that happening? How can they not have some kind of um, feeling for these animals that they're applying these horrible? I mean, I didn't talk to you about the worst of what happens and you can read that in my article if you're brave enough, but, you know, you don't have to, of course, but, like, it's just, it's mind-boggling how there's no empathy or kind of connection with the experiences of these animals. And there's mice, there's rats, there's rabbits, there's cats and dogs that, you know, and horses, so many. Um, But really, it's unbelievable. Mm.
1: And from one sort of invisibilised animal to another, um, I understand you're also doing some work on possums at the moment. There's a book in the production. Um, Can you tell us about what's what's happening there?
2: Yeah, so um, I'm just so happy to be writing this book for the Animal Public Series, which is brought out by Sydney Uni Press. I have to say I've been working on it for a long time now. I thought it would be easily finished within two years, but it's taken me four so far. It's just so much in it. Uh, because I'm actually looking at not just possums but opossums, you know. So, uh, so I'm looking from the Americas right across uh, Melanesia and Australasia, finishing with Aotearoa. But I can honestly say that I'm a bit disappointed, I suppose, because every culture that I've looked at does crawl things to possums, and you know, all oh, possums. And it's kind of like I really wished I could find something positive about how people treat them, but they're kind of always used and they're respected, scare quote, yeah, um across different cultures. Certainly not here in any in any way at all, but. Uh, That respect doesn't necessarily lead to any better treatment. And so, from a possum-centric perspective, the world's a pretty shitty place, (laughs) you know, Uh, or or opossum. However, they have, they do have, um, they have some beautiful stories associated with possums right across the Americas and Australasia, Australia, of course, and in, like Papua New Guinea. But New Zealand, yeah, you don't want to be a possum here. It's just demonisation to the max. They're responsible for everything. And somehow, this is what I think is just incredible, most people find it hard to hate a creature who's so cute, like that cute response we all have. New Zealand has worked really hard, progressive governments and DOC, to indoctrinate children here so that they don't have that automatic cute response to possums. And if you look at the children's literature in New Zealand with possums in it, I could only find one, Possum Joe, which was a an children, illustrated children's book about a hunter who went out killing possums until he had an accident and then the possums saved him um, and so he said he would never hunt them again. That's the only thing I can find in, in New Zealand context that isn't like, get them, they're just demons and they're deliberately evil. And they came here. This is the thing that gets me too. It's like this idea that they forced themselves into the country and onto us, you No, know, and where they were brought here, like possibly brought here. So it's, they didn't want to be here. They were brought here, and it's not about invasion. That's a myth. They did not invade New Zealand. But all the military discourse associated with possums, it's just absolutely rampant and... And, you know, you have to, if you want to help a possum or rescue a possum, you actually have no help at all. Um, In fact, you know, legally they have to be destroyed. So uh, I remember once we found a possum on the road by the Littleton Tunnel and she she looked like she was just stunned and needed some time, but I called the SPCA to see if they, you know, absolute useless to do that. However, the nice person who came said, "Well, you've got a choice. She, she comes with us, and we destroy her, or you let her go back in the bush, and you know, see what happens." So she helped me to take her into the bush, and we released her, and hopefully she was okay. But I mean, it's crazy here. It's like a scapegoat them so much.
0: You mentioned um indoctrination before which I think is like the absolute correct term for it because it's incredible the the it's like the team of five million so to speak collectively have this attitude towards animals considered pests and to kill them is to be doing a patriotic duty Um, that's what some people how some people consider this literally your patriotic duty Mm -hmm. to kill these animals in the hope of you know, maybe we'll have, be pest free. And uh, I can't remember what the government date was they set to be um, predator free. 2050. 2050. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, not specifically a possum, but there was an incident um, around 2020 now where Safe had obtained a video of a man who had caught a rat in a cage and and actually drowned it. And he posted it on social media and had hashtag predator free twenty fifty across it. Like literally bragging about the fact that he was yeah. like treating this animal with such contempt. As a their patriotic duty, it's just yeah, yeah like pro, it's literally government propaganda, really.
2: It is, it is government propaganda, and in fact, the term use of the term "predator" for them mm. is propaganda. They're not predators; they're folivores or herbivores. You know, they're not. I mean, this, this these videos of them eating eggs. We've rescued possums before, and we've given them eggs to test them on this. They're not even remotely interested. We have a hen house and they've been able to wander around the hen house. They don't go in and eat the eggs. They're not interested in the eggs. You need to eventually talk to Emily Major about this because her PhD, she's actually investigated this to like some lengths. But the use of the term predator is strategic and it makes them sound like they're vicious, carnivorous animals who want to eat all the native birds and You know, they're just not really that interested. They might eat the trees and so on. um, But it's sort of, it's just such a scapegoating exercise. And it's, I'm really dismayed by the schools around where I live who take the children out to set traps and then go back and check on these animals. And they're encouraged, you know, we all know in the rural areas they're encouraged to have possum throwing competitions, dress up a dead possum competition. I mean, you know, what on earth is that teaching kids about kindness to animals? And how are they supposed to make the distinction between this really cute animal and then a, a, you know another animal? Well, what's the difference? It's because, well, the difference is that, like you said, well, it's a patriotic duty to actually be not just not just get rid of possums, but to brutally get rid of them. Do it in the cruelest, hardest, most punishing way possible, so they really feel it and know how much we hate them, you know. And it's just, it's immature and it's, uh, it's idiotic and I think the people that do this, um, I don't know, I just worry about their sense of empathy and compassion basically.
1: Yeah, 100%. It's, like you say, the, the demonization's become so entrenched in New Zealand society. But it's also really interesting that any form of discourse around it or anyone wanting to talk about it at all, it's so quickly shut down. I mean, um, when I was working for a newspaper, I wrote a story about a possum. It was a baby possum. It had escaped from um, someone's house. They were keeping it as a pet, which was already an issue for a lot of people. Um, But it had escaped and it was terrorizing, a woman who was trying to come out of her house and the possum kept rushing at her. So we wrote the story about that because it was a little bit funny. And then as it pro- progressed on, what we found out was actually it was this little baby possum that was just used to people and it was not rushing her. It was coming up to sort of climb up her leg like it had done with the owner or I shouldn't call it the owner, the um, the person who was caring for her. It turned out her name was Mrs. Scoby Lunchbox. It ended up going global. Everybody was interested in this story And it was really interesting because I'd just come back from Australia where possums are protected. And so to me, it was just this beautiful, cute story that had garnered all this interest from across the world. But what I got back from the readers of the paper, and actually it went quite a lot wider than the readers of the paper because it was online, was vitriolic. Like it was so... Angry. There was people sort of telling me that none of this should have happened, this is illegal, they should have stomped on it while they had the chance. You know, it was, like you say, like it was vicious.
2: Yeah, it makes you worry about people here, really, that they have that mentality towards any creature, you know. And this is the link that Mick um, Taylor talks about too, the link between social violence and animal abuse. I mean, that too is, is like we have such high re- – rates of domestic violence here and infanticide and all these other forms of violence, and yet we're being asked to um, patriotically kill in brutal ways baby possums, like stomp on them or frown them or whatever. I mean, of course we're going to have this kind of violence that just infiltrates the whole of society because violence is violence. And, you know, if you can do that to a tiny little creature of course you can do it to, to a person that's my feeling anyway i think how can we even you know i mean i, I think also um, the, the, there's a thing about this this demonization of possums here that's obviously scapegoating them for things that we that particularly Pākehā culture doesn't want to recognize um, such as how you know Colonists cleared all the land for farming. Now, why don't we have su- why don't we have people saying, um, "Oh, we need to regenerate all this agricultural land that we have, you know, cleared now, so that it's just full of grass that's foreign and that, um, animals who emit gases and all this." And instead of looking at that, it's very convenient to look at a so called pest animal and decide you're going to put all of your um, vitriol onto that creature then think "Hmm, perhaps I shouldn't be actually uh, buying into the agricultural economy which has cleared all this land and is also the main reason why the native birds don't have places to to live now Um, and also why um, you know we have such uh, high risks of bowel cancer in the country and also why you know um, we should really be thinking about reducing meat and dairy consumption for for climate change reasons. But, you know, I, I've noticed, for example, listening to National Radio, that the main thing they talk about in relation to issues like climate change is e-vehicles or, you know, transporters. How are we going to help the environment through transport? But, we, but you know, animal agriculture is a much greater problem here And there's never any talk about how are we going to eat this meat? How are we going to, you know, address these issues of, like, regenerating the land and so on? And instead, it's much more convenient, I think, to to blame possums and rats and stoats, you know, and feral cats now for all the problems that happen in our environment and and so on. Just convenient and a form of scapegoating.
1: Inconvenient and also requires personal change personal movement across you know something that might be uncomfortable and addressing things that potentially you are doing but also i suppose there's that that link with colonialism and then also with nationalism as well because it is still a very new zealand centric idea to support our farmers to support dairy to support meat production all of that sort of thing and i know previously you have talked about that to abstain from meat and dairy feels like you're doing something Uh, unpatriotic do you still feel like that
2: I never felt like that but we did a study where we talked to vegetarians and vegans and many of them voiced that I'm happy to not be patriotic I don't actually believe in nationalism Um, and so you know I think that it's at the heart of a lot of problems that countries have But, but I have felt that discomfort of going to a barbecue I just don't go to barbecues now where the meat smells all around you and there's nothing for you to eat. And then, you know, it's like, why aren't you eating? Oh, because I don't eat meat. And, you know, I don't bother with that now. I'm, I'm too old to bother with that now, <laughs> you know. Um, so, I under, you know, I think that things have changed since that stuff I did, which is probably about 15 years ago now. I think things have changed in a much more positive way in Aotearoa. And I think that you know, if you look at the Colmar Brunton poll from a few years ago, I think it was 2019, showing a massive increase in plant-based, or vegans and vegetarians, basically, in New Zealand. Um, And particularly in the age group, I think it was 18 to 34 of men in Aotearoa. Now, that's the huge thing, you know. um, I was really boosted by that. I thought that if that's the demographic that's taking up veganism or vegetarianism in New Zealand, then we've got hope. And, um, you know, of course, that's reflected across the world in Western cultures that there's this, this move upwards of veganism, vegetarianism, but in our country where we're so indoctrinated also about how farming is the backbone of our nation and, you know, like you've both said, it's unpatriotic to, to not support animal farming. Um I think that's an awesome move in the right direction. And just in my my city, Ota Tahi, Christchurch, I have noticed the number of vegan cafes has exploded in the last 10 years. Like we have about 12 places we can choose from when we're going out now for mm-hmm. a meal. And um, that was unheard of mm-hmm. a decade or so ago. So it's definitely, it's not just about, I think it's it's not just about, um, like, animal empathy, even empathy to animals, but also people worrying about the environment now, climate change. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to go vegan, it's good for the animals, whatever the reason is. Um, so bring it on, you know. <laughs> preferably you've got some kind of interest in animals, but... Um, But, you know, these vegans who are in it for health, well, at least they're not eating uh, animals who have been tortured and killed in horrible ways.
1: One thing that sort of aligns with this that I'm really keen to hear your perspective on in terms of veganism and, you know, culture, I suppose, is this idea of nostalgia. So there's a piece in your um, meat culture book about it, which I loved, which I can read out. Um, It's talking about fish and chips. And this is something that um, Will and I have talked about before in terms of fish and it being quite nostalgic. And it just really, it really sat with me. And it says this, Fish and Chips remains a recognized family treat in the United Kingdom as well as its former colonial outposts, New Zealand and Australia, where this meal represents family time, the end of a working week, a night off cooking, holidays and relaxation. The benign symbolism of this traditional working class food belies the suffering of countless individual fish and other marine life. And I find that so interesting because this idea of nostalgia it was something that I noticed as soon as I went vegan. It was people going, wait a minute, no more fish and chips, no more birthday cake, no more Christmas ham. And it's really interesting that all of those sort of flashbulb moments, all those special days or occasions or national days have that link with meat culture. And I'm interested to hear of on your thoughts on how you kind of encountered that.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I suppose... Um... I'm, in some ways, I'm not a very nice person because um, <laughs> when I went vegan, I stopped going to family Christmases immediately. I just didn't want to celebrate um, the, the slaughter of an animal would have you know because it's always about the meat, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like you go to the family event and the thing that's always talked about is how not how nice the meat is, and that sort of like no thanks. But I think. Um, Nostalgia. What was I nostalgic for? I, really, I I sort of stopped eating chicken when I was about five because I because that's the first connection I made was to the, the hens that we had in the back garden. And my parents, I was so lucky because they were you know post World War Two parents and they were um, pretty into eating meat and stuff, but they just were fine with that. So I was very lucky. They never forced me to eat meat, and then gradually I gave up other forms of meat until fish was the last because fish, you know, is kind of like food before it's even dead. You know, like that's how we tend to think of fish and chickens, that they're walking food before they're even slaughtered. Um, But I don't think I've ever found it a nostalgic thing. I've never felt that to have meat. And I, um, I think I can understand it and I think what we're lucky with now is that we can have we have substitutes for all that now if you if you're worried about um uh, you know a christmas without our special food um then you know we can have vegan tofuki and you know there's um there's vegan fish and chips um so all those things we can now get uh through con- through our consumption of them because we're doing that more and more of that. They're coming onto the supermarket shelves and you know, and things like that. So I don't know. I think um, I think that certainly that tradition, those ideas of traditional, you know, ceremonies with families or celebrations and so on, um, are very difficult for vegans um, when they attend and, and they have to be around the celebration of meat. And I also think that. Um, there's still a very strong tradition for like barbecues and stuff, which, um, I mean, the problem for me, I guess, is that I don't even like fake meat. I don't like the taste of meat. I've never liked even the idea of tasting an animal's flesh. So I don't eat any fake meats. Um, I'm not interested in like um, fake cheeses and stuff either, but that's just me. So I don't miss meat at all or cheese or any of that. Um, and I, I'm not saying that there's something wrong with fake meats, but I think they're awesome as a transition for people moving from meat-based, you know, meals to vegetarians or veganism. And they're also, um, cool if you miss meat and you are vegan. But personally, I don't want to taste an animal. So I don't really want them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question if I went right
1: off on No. No, it's just interesting an interesting point that I found because yeah, I guess for me, like we were talking specifically last time around um fishing as a as a yeah. thing to go and do. And I suppose like for Will, you I mean you can speak to this, but it was something that was done. In childhood, that was a bonding time with family, and it was kind. Of, that was the nostalgia there, and I think for me, like the idea of fish and chips, like we would have that every Friday night. That would be the the night that we would get together as a family, and that was just what we did. And so that nostalgia sticks around, and it's really I found it really interesting in that quote and in the book about how and it does it does it dulls that idea of what's actually happening, of what the damage actually is. Um, when it comes to fishing and all of that, it dulls it down because it's just something nice and it's just a little bit of Kiwiana and it's it's just fish and chips. It's
2: comforting and it's restoring because it's normal and nice and, you know, it's part of the family tradition and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think my family was just perhaps a bit strange in that way. We didn't really have any fish and chip nights, <laughs> and, and I never went fishing with my dad. I did go, I did learn to ride horses and that's a very that's been a hard thing for me to give up because I really enjoyed that but I don't want to dominate anybody now so you know really that's don't get me started on
1: that I I know that this is um not new and potentially you know it's sort of 15 years old and things but it's still to me a really really interesting idea and I think a lot of people may still have not heard of it so I did want to just quickly cover vegan sexuality if that's okay with you. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about what it is and how you came to it and what you um, sort of experienced when you were doing that work.
2: Yeah okay well um, that's probably about yeah it will be about 15 years ago now um, and I we had a Marsden funded project called Kararehi the animal and New Zealand culture. And it was a bicultural project. And one of my parts of that was I wanted to look at ethical consumption in Aotearoa. And so I sent out this survey, and about 150 people responded to it. It was a very in depth survey where you got to write whatever you wanted, whether it was a lot or a little, about ethical consumption. And we had some, we had about 16 omnivores reply to that, and we also had a lot of vegans and vegetarians. Um and, and I had um I was working with two master's students at the time, Mandala White and Jovian Parry, and Mandala and I worked on the original report, which you can still see on the New Zealand Centre for Human Animal Studies research site. Um although it's, very, it's old now, but which showed at one point we were like, we asked about people in relationships, and we got back these really interesting responses from about five to seven vegan women who said in their response to to the question or topic about relationships that they did not wish to be in an intimate relationship with their all heterosexual man who was a meat eater. And it was different reasons for this. And so Jovian and I over that summer, we did this analysis of this and we, we found that there seemed to be a kind of um, a spectrum of how some vegans understood their sexuality in relation to their veganism, really. Um, And at one end of the spectrum, it was sort of just like that idea of like attracts like. So it would be hard, they felt it was harder to be in a relationship with someone who didn't have your values. So someone with carnist values wouldn't necessarily be a good match for somebody with vegan values. But on the other end of this, spectrum Was a more I think it's like a more sort of embodied experience of sexuality related to veganism, which is um, felt on a on a kind of a, a visceral level, and it's sort of like an aversion to the bodies of those who eat meat or dairy or other animal products. Um, and they talked about this in ways like you know um, they wouldn't want to kiss someone who just had a steak or. They felt people who had dairy, who consumed dairy, smelt different. um, And they didn't like that. And also, on a really ethical embodied level, they would say things like one of them, a couple of them said something about how um, they wouldn't want to, to like, kind of exchange sexual fluids with somebody who had, whose body was made up of, of, you know, animals who'd been sorted and consumed by them. Um and so that was really what we we found was really interesting and kind of exciting because I mean it's it's not we certainly never um conceptualised that as a new imperative for vegans. So one thing we'll get straight is that we never said when we discovered that this was happening, that this was something all vegans should aspire to. Um, and we also didn't think it was any kind of predetermined or innate sort of sexuality. It's just a, an embodied, an embodied sexual preference that's based on you know your concern for other species, really. And I totally understand it. I, if I wasn't with my partner, I wouldn't be bothered being with somebody who who ate meat or dairy. I'd be looking for somebody like minded. But I'm probably more probably a mixture. But then I also understand how vegans might not be, you know, that concerned. that that When you're looking for a partner, you might not be that concerned to find someone who's vegan as well. I mean, my partnership started off 31 years ago this year, uh, where I was vegetarian and my partner was a meat eater. And I didn't like that at all, for some of the reasons that those women talk about as well. I could smell meat and smell deer and stuff, but I really liked him. And then um a few years later, he became vegetarian, so we were both vegetarian, but it was actually Philip who then a couple of years later said, I can't, I, I need to go vegan, you know, and this was back in about 1997 uh, because now, I'm, you know, he was on this journey and finding more and more things out, and I'd stopped finding things out. Um, and, you know, so it was because of him that we became vegan. So you can see in that story, there are all different ways that um, – we kind of influenced each other, and um, so I I think I think it would be very hard if he had stayed a meat eater, because of the values thing and like you know how important it is. But I know people who live who are very staunch vegans who live with men who eat meat or women who eat meat or you know non-binary people who eat meat, and it's still. I guess, hopeful that things might change, or if not, it's not a problem for them. So it's sort of, it's an individual thing. But I think I don't really understand why it became such a huge phenomenon because it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's just, I don't know, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with anyone who voted for ACT. So, you know, I'm hardly going to, you know, it's just
1: the same sort of thing, isn't it? Mm. I wouldn't have the same day <laughs> And it is funny because there was a big reaction to it and it came from sort of all sides. And one thing that I found interesting that was a bit of a, I wouldn't say backlash, but response to it was, I think it was voiced by a Peter spokesperson, but I mean, myself, I've heard it from other people in the intervening years, but there was that line of thinking that vegans who choose other vegans as partners... were unhelpful to the cause because sex or intimate relationships could be seen as um, a conversion strategy of yeah, sorts. Yeah. What did you make of that? Well,
2: you know, I'm I'm opposed to any sort of fundamentalism and, and you know, whether it's Christian fundamentalism or vegan fundamentalism because I think that, the, that there's a problem in, in being black and white like that. And um, I kind of personally, I... I'm more interested in Laurie Gruen's idea of veganism having an aspirational feel about it. Because, you know, the idea of being an identity vegan or a true vegan is actually, it's not possible. I mean, it's simply not possible to be vegan vegan because you do your very best that you can. Um, but, you know, if I go outside, I'm I'm stepping on insects all the time and I have to take certain medications to keep me healthy And I know where they've come from and what's happened to get those. So in that way, I can't say I'm a um, pure vegan, but I don't think anybody is because I think you can only be aspirational and do the very best you can. And I guess I get concerned where there's a black and white, like her, like it was Ingrid Newkirk, I think, and her, her idea, I think she said later was said somewhat in jest, you know, But it does sound a little bit like Christian conversion to me. And um, so, you know, it made me think like, no, thanks. I mean, relationships are complex at the best of times. And I think that's something that two people work out together if they like each other. I mean, it's it's preference too. I I would prefer not to live with a meat eater. And I don't, so I'm very lucky. But some people, you know, don't have that luxury, I guess, even if they're vegan which I feel is, is, you know, pretty horrible for them probably. I mean, so, you know, to, to say to somebody to be a pure vegan or a proper vegan, you've got to have a vegan partner or only vegan friends or whatever is, is not helpful. But also to say that you've got to go out there and sort of procreate <laughs> um, with meat eaters to, get <laughs> to make other vegans or whatever, I think that's a bit silly.
1: Who knows? Who has the answers? But I mean, I, I found I found all of that super interesting and I, I love the concept and I, it makes total sense in my head as well. But Annie, we have been talking for almost an hour now and it's gone past like 10 minutes. Um, so I suppose we should probably wrap up. But I just want to say massive thank you for being here because that's been such a fascinating conversation and it's all the things that I love to read about and learn about. Um, and I'd love to talk to you further about it sometime.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Annie. I hope you've enjoyed it just as much as we have.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the time's just passed like a big blur, but I think I've done like way too much talking and I'm sorry about that if it's been dry or a bit too academic times or whatever. But yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And, um, yeah, I just encourage people to love possums, um, to stop eating meat, and to um, check out our NSCHAS website um, for the courses that we run and also the PhD if anyone's interested in in dedicating four years of poorly paid, um, barely minimum wage study, um having lots of like anxious moments because <laughs> because they don't know whether or not they're on the right track or not all that stuff
1: come and see us because we'll help you then. oh annie you've sold it so well <laughs>
0: thank you for listening to animal matters this podcast is brought to you by safe for animals aotearoa's leading animal rights organization we release new episodes every fortnight, so make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your favourite podcast platform is. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at safe.org.nz forward slash animal matters. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating, as it helps other listeners to find the show. Until next time, Matewa.